welcome back to the Folkcraft Revival Podcast. Today we're talking about felting with uh, Rosemary Wells. Rosemary was the instructor that I took a, a class from at the Rapid Stick Rendezvous this last fall. Uh, I made a hat with her. Um, really enjoyed my time doing it. It was my first time ever attempting a felting project uh, and really had a lot of fun and reached out to her and asked if she'd be willing to chat for a while about the process of felting, the, the fundamental process, uh, not necessarily hats in specific, but um, felting in general, what goes on, what needs to go on, and how to how to understand what's ha- what's happening with the wool as you as you create a project, whether that be mittens or a vest or a hat or uh, a chair cushion or whatever. Um, so yeah, I'm I'm super happy that she was willing to chat with me, and uh, we had a great conversation. I think you'll enjoy it. Um, I know it's been a little while since I posted an episode. I've been um just got back yesterday from I've been down helping my dad uh, remodel a 1880s uh old stone house. Um they had some some pipes burst and flooded the house pretty bad. It got a lot of damage. Um so basically gutted the thing and been redoing it. Yeah, uh, it's quite fascinating seeing some of the old craftsmanship, the hand-hewn timbers and the joinery and some of the old blacksmith nails and whatnot still holding the house together. Um, Just an interesting peek at the past. So that's what I've been up to. And once again, I apologize about not having uh, posted anything for a while. Um, Hope you guys have all been doing well and uh, have managed to find some projects to keep you occupied while spending more time at home than usual. What with everything going on, it's, yeah, it's going to be interesting over the next little while. And I'll definitely be glad that I have a few projects that I want to learn and a few things that I'm in the middle of that I can, I can spend more time on, uh, or the next little bit. So, uh, that and a podcast, I suppose, um, back to felting. Like I said, we, we talk about felting in general throughout this, although we often talk in reference to hat making in particular, because that's usually what Rosemary teaches. Um, don't necessarily worry about that if you're not making a hat and you're you're focused on other felting projects and what, what have you. Um, yeah, still applicable. Just um, get to know the process, the underlying fundamental process that we're talking about. So, uh, Episode show notes this week. Uh, let's see, this is episode 14. Uh, yeah, show notes will be over at folkcraftrevival.com forward slash 14. Um, check it out for any any links to things we've mentioned. Appreciate you guys tuning in. And with that, let's uh, jump into the episode where uh, I'd start talking with Rosemary a little bit about the history of felting and where it originated. <laughs> well, there are a lot of legends about how felting started. They found felting as early as 6500 BC uh, in Turkey just bits of felt in in archaeological digs. Some of the oldest pieces of felt are found in the Hermitage Museum in Russia, and and they date back to about 400-500 BC uh, from a culture in Siberia where there was permafrost because, you know, it's organic, and so it's going to decompose. But the culture, and I'm trying to remember the name of the culture, but the culture that they found there in Siberia actually is a culture that's related to a culture over in the Ukraine, which is, of course, right in in that area around you know, Poland and Turkey and, and that area. So that's kind of the 
the place where where the oldest cell phone came from was right around that area. Um, so it it predates spinning and it predates um, any kind of fabric art that there ever was. It's one of the oldest forms. Of- certainly makes sense. It's uh, doing that one project with you. It definitely is a lot easier than trying to set up a a loom and weave or spin or anything like that. So I can understand why it would be yeah, earlier. Yeah. Yeah. And for, and for cultures, you know, that, that use felting for, you know, they make yurts out of it. They make homes out of it, or they'll make the blankets that go underneath horses or, or rugs or clothing or hats or mittens or boots. You can make almost anything out of felt. And for some of those cultures, um, that are in the Far East that are depending on felching. There are all sorts of legends associated with it. And even around Turkey, there are legends about St. Christopher, St. Clementine, that when they were, when they were trudging or fleeing uh, persecution, that they put wool in the bottom of their shoes. And, and that by walking the sweat from their feet and by walking on those, on that, that wool, that's how felting started. But of course, felting predates that. Um, But there was also, you know, there are also other, other legends that go along with great warriors who were felting. So it tells you how important it was to those cultures to have felting there because it was a, a source of shelter and warmth and, um, you know, kept their horses and their, and their, and the things that they were riding healthy and strong. So it was part of a warrior's battle attire. And you'll see in the hermitage, there are some, um, there are some saddle blankets from, from BC that before Christ there that, that were made for horses that protected those horses. There are also some really beautiful things in the hermitage. There's a, there's a salon that is fully formed out of felt that's just absolutely gorgeous. Oh, there. wow. Yeah, yeah, that would be pretty. The hermitage is in, is in Russia. It's a museum in Russia. So That would be fun to look into. I may have to look and see if I can find any pictures of yeah. stuff like that. Oh, yeah, you will. If you just type in hermitage and felting, you'll find, you'll find pictures. Are most of the oldest... Uh, felted articles that we're finding is that mostly sheep wool or is it uh well is it, i guess is it anything else you know, any like camel hair anything like that what what was primarily being used was it primarily sheep primarily sheep and some camels so sheep and camels so that's why in turkey that was the that was the the medium that was used because there were sheep and camel there and that's probably why it started because yeah. they had the supposed to do it so it was mostly sheep and camel and from there, it kind of spread. Uh, so where where yeah. is there a traditional uh, felting? I, I think a lot of, when I think of sheep, I start thinking of like the UK, but I'm guessing it took a while to reach there. They just have a, a big sheep population. So where uh, where where's a big felt culture found? Around those Norse countries, you'll find, you'll find more felting done. And of course, it's still done in... Um, in the Slavic countries, Kazakhstan and some of those countries around there make absolutely gorgeous rugs. Okay. That they're using, uh, yeah, using a technique called tekamet, which has to do with uh, putting appliques on the felt. And that's a very, very old technique that goes back to um, the BCs, you know, a few hundred years BC. But they do a lot of felting in, in some of those Norse countries as well. It didn't travel to England as much. And and in the in the Americas, you really haven't found any examples of ancient felting, even though they had the sheep for it. The Navajo churro sheep is one of the best sheep uh, sheep wool fibers for felting, but but you don't find a lot of artifacts uh, of of felt that they used it more for spinning, and they like the Navajo churro for the staple on it. 
Um, but some of the some of the sheep that are really best for felting come from the the Middle East, right around there, the Jacoby sheep and and the Navajo sheep is related to the Jacoby sheep and and you have the Icelandic and you've got um you let's see, I'm trying to think some of my sheep breeds that we've got. There's Romney, um, there's Cotswold and those of course are English sheep and those felt well, but you don't see it quite as much in England as you would other places. And and the very best felting sheep come from the Middle East. I'm guessing that's kind of uh, intentional. They kind of go together. You breed sheep for the type of wool that you have a use for. And if you are yeah. interested in felting and your culture does a lot of felting, you're going to breed your sheep to have wool that is prime for felting. Kind right. of go hand in hand. Right. Makes sense with the Nordic countries and whatnot too, though. Uh, you get the colder temperatures and wool felt is a pretty impressive insulator. So. Yeah. Absolutely. In fact, that's what I breed my sheep for right now. I breed my sheep for the quality of their wool for felting. There aren't very many people who do that. It's kind of a side thing because Merino and some of these other ones are used for spinning. Yeah. But I felt so much, I breed my sheep. How many sheep do you have? Quality of their wool. Um, We keep anywhere from 12 to 20 sheep on our little farm. Okay. And how big of a farm do you have? We have 16 acres. Okay. So it's actually not that many for the amount of acreage you have then. No, no. And and Navajo sheep are very prolific. The history of the Navajo sheep that I raised is kind of tragic and inspiring all at the same time because they were raised by the Navajo people. Now, it's said that they were brought there um, from the Iberian Peninsula because they're related to some of the sheep there and to the Jacoby sheep that are in the Middle East. So where exactly they came from is uncertain. Um, many people believe that the Spaniards brought them. Um, but the DNA matches the sheep in the Middle East. So, um, but but these sheep were raised for meat, milk, and wool by the Navajo people. And then when our government came on the scene, it was like the Navajo people's buffalo, and they worked to eradicate these sheep to control the population. They started replacing these sheep with substandard sheep, you know, meat sheep like Suffolk and Columbia. And even they thought, oh, the Merino is a much softer wool the Merino and the Suffolk and the Colombian sheep are not as prolific or as hardy as the Navajo sheep are. Navajo sheep can withstand almost any kind of weather. And they also didn't give as much milk. Um, the quality of the wool wasn't as good. The staple wasn't as long. Um, so they they got rid of all of these sheep. And then in the 1930s, when they were building the Hoover Dam, they found these sheep again had, all, all, had started to multiply on the Navajo reservations. And they're like, where did these come from? And once again, they made an attempt to kill these sheep and to eradicate these sheep and it was pretty tragic when they did it because these sheep are part of the Navajo culture and part of the Navajo family these sheep actually go into the home and when we've given sheep to the Navajo people we are told that the sheep will be given a Navajo name and and that they are treated with honor so to eradicate these sheep was really trying to kill a culture that was happening for the Navajo people and uh and there is now, in the 1970s, a man named Lyle McNeil and Bill Varga were working down on the reservation, and Bill Varga actually went, and and Lyle McNeil went to him and said, have you seen any of these sheep? And Bill Varga went to the family he was working with agriculturally, and they said, oh, yeah. And they found a flock of about uh, 30 sheep up in the mountains and started breeding them back in the 1970s, and there are about six, 7,000 Navajo churros in the world today. Um, people love them. They love to 
interbreed them because the the meat is so sweet and the meat is is so good. I milk them, and I actually make cheese and soap from the milk from the Navajo sheep. So nice. Yeah. How how large is a Navajo? What's that? I said I don't think I've ever been around a uh, one of the Navajo churro sheep. How big how big do they get? They're smaller sheep, uh, um, and they're long tail sheep. Okay. Uh, one of the things that I had to learn was that Navajo churros are much more, I'm going to say this, intelligent than other sheep because I had other people who were raising sheep who said sheep are dumb. And I'm like, really? Because <laughs> my sheep know their names. They come when we whistle. They, <laughs> um, they're just, I had a sheep, uh, I had a ram that jumped through hoops and that, uh, and that would actually fetch. I could toss a rag out a few feet away from me and he'd pick it up and drop it at my feet. And we actually gave him to the Navajo people and he's getting pretty old right now. And so they um, were told that he'll be buried with honor and that he will have a, a special wow. burial because he's such an honored ram. But, but yeah, Navajo sheep are, are different than any other kind of sheep that you work with because they just seem to have this awareness that the other sheep don't have. Maybe it's because we interact with them. Maybe it's because they interacted with the Navajo people so much it changed their DNA. I don't know why. And I've talked to Navajo people about it, and I don't know why um, they have this. I'm sure the interaction's part of it. And then the other part is uh, the older breeds in general of just about any sort of uh, livestock seem to be a lot more intelligent than their uh, more modern counterparts. So yeah, in my experience, yeah, you, you get around some of the older breeds, the uh, yeah, more original breeds and they're a lot hardier and a lot more intelligent. Yeah. So anyway, I don't know how that relates to Phil. <laughs> it's a fun tangent. Become a lifestyle. Yeah. It's, it's, it, it, it literally is part, it's in my blood. It really is because I was, you know, because I have that Ukrainian background, I just kind of accepted this as part of who I am. We weren't living this way um, before we started raising sheep and we literally moved and bought land so that we could raise sheep because I loved felting so much. And how how was, did you get started in felting? Um, I started felting back uh, 18 years ago. Yeah. 18 years ago, I went to, uh, to rabbit stick, a primitive skills camp. And I walked up to one of the felting instructors because there's so much to do at those primitive skills camp. I thought, Oh, I can just go online and learn this. Right. Yeah. That's what you think. And so I went to one of the instructors and I said, can I learn this online? And he said, no. And I said, can I read about it in a book and learn how to do this? And he said, no. And I thought, oh, my goodness. <laughs> <laughs> and indeed, I went home and I attempted to self and it was a disaster. <laughs> so the next year, I went and I took from one felting instructor and she was fantastic. And I used Romney Wool at that time. Uh, and her name was Wonia. And then I went to another felting instructor named Lynx. And she taught me how to felt with churro wool. And she's really the one that got me going with the churro wool that I learned. And then I went and I took a class from another felter, felting guru named Jack Fee, and he taught me more about felting. And so I'd been taking classes from, from different people. And then I found someone who had churro wool in my area. I'd been kind of finding wool places and some of the wool was good and some of the wool was bad. And after Lynx taught me about the churro wool, then I started felting with the churro wool with her. And so I started at Rabbit Stick at those primitive skills camps, just felting with a number. And I went to Winter Count, which is another primitive skills camp. And I just started felting with a number of different instructors and kind of pulling information from them. And then, um, and then after about five years, I started kind of developing my own technique. 
and, and watching, I would watch videos about how they do it in Kazakhstan, how they'd make rugs in Kazakhstan, how they do things in some of those more ancient cultures. I started watching those things and going, oh, that's what I'm missing, or that's what I need to learn how to do, or sometimes just by making mistakes and learning things by doing it so much, because it really is a hands-on art. You really can't learn everything just by, just by you know, reading a book. And there are some great books out there, but you just can't. You have to do it. It's a very tactile and, and very intuitive. I think it's an art form. So that's that one you- thing I did like about this one, too, is I, I took your class at Rabbit Stick this last fall, and I enjoyed the fact that it is so uh, organic. There's no, like, measure. I'm used to woodworking, yeah. so you measure and you get everything fitting together perfectly and whatever. And this, mm-hmm. you kind of just throw wool together and you start prodding it and... uh if it needs to change shape, you can change shape partway through. And I really mm-hmm. enjoyed that part of it. That was fun. Yeah, yeah, it is. And I, and I think the more you do it, the more you learn about the fiber. It's almost like connecting to that fiber and, and learning about what it's going to do and, and the feel of it. For instance, one of the things that I've learned is how to, many people will cut their felt to make their brims. Now, that's not wrong. There are all sorts of ways to do things, and it makes a nice straight brim. But one of the things I learned is that there were certain projects I couldn't do if I cut because the integrity of the wool, it, it, it doesn't work as well. Um, it's, it's more apt to split. You know, I've, I've watched some people make berets, for instance, or vests by cutting that wool. And I like to do it as one solid piece, which is a little more traditional. But, um, but when you learn how to lay out that wool, it's almost like mechanically engineering that based on the direction the fibers to go. Where's, where are you going to need strength and how are you going to need strength? You know, when I lay it out around the edges there, I do what's called wrapping the edges. And so the direction of the fibers makes it so that I have strength and flexibility so I can shape it more easily. Yeah. So that's, that's one of the things I've learned just kind of by doing and watching uh, happen. You just mentioned some projects that you were doing didn't uh, work very well because they started splitting when you cut them. What sort of projects uh, don't work very well when you cut the wool, when you cut the felt? I, I find that berets don't work as well. For one thing, if, if you don't use a very, very soft fiber, and, and I don't. Churro wool is not necessarily very soft, but it's very, very strong. But also, if, if you don't felt it just perfectly around the opening of a beret, okay. that doesn't work as well when you cut it. You can felt along the edge, but there's always a little bit of prickliness there and it and it weakens that. And when you use a beret, you have to stretch that to fit your head because you have to have it very tight and you can stretch this. But but when I make a beret, I've got the fibers going one direction all the way around and then I switch the directions to wrap that edge so I have the strength and the flexibility for that. I also find when I make vests, um, the armhole of the vest is um, is a place where you're going to have stress or pull. And so I, I watch that. And also, I when I do things, I do multiple resist pieces. A resist is what you put inside of that, make it so that the fiber doesn't stick to itself. And so when you make a hat, there's only one resist. When you make a vest, I actually have three resists that I'm using so that it overlaps um, and so that I can put a pocket in it. So when I have a pocket, you can't cut a pocket open. When you do a multiple resist piece, you can't put a pocket in there and then just cut it open. Yeah. So you have to be aware of what the top of that pocket is doing. So I, uh, I, this is a this is a podcast I know, and I'm trying to figure out how to <laughs> what I'm talking about when when I when I'm doing a vest. Um, 
one of the things I find too, that when I do rugs, I like to finish off the edges of my rugs because those make stronger edges for those rugs and cleaner edges for those rugs. And I don't cut the edges of those rugs because um, they can fray. The other thing you find when you cut the edge is that your edges can become thick and thin in places. And if you're watching that edge and wrapping that edge, then you've got a more consistent edge because you're more aware of the thickness of the edge all the way around. Whereas if you're, for instance, cutting open some sort of project, you may find a thin spot where you cut it open and it's like, oh, darn, this edge of my hat, it's, you know, <laughs> I did, I thought it was really great, but it's thinner than another part of my hat. And you can control that a little better when you, when you learn how to wrap those edges. So there's some other layout things that I do that are a little different than other felters because we are, felting makes you think outside the box. We're human beings and felting is such a great journey for learning about, you know, how we think because when we, when we lay things out, we like to lay things out symmetrically. And so you'll lay down your resist and a lot of the instructions will say, just have it stick out just an inch beyond the edge. And then you flip it over and you, you make that edge of the hat good. Now you've had my class, so you know what I'm talking about. But You're talking about the make your, your wool layout over the edge mm-hmm. an inch. Mm-hmm. So these are the like resist. these are like technical things, they're like mechanical things that you learn as you start to felt more and more that I lay out beyond the edge so that I'm building the the seam to the hat out beyond where the seam is so that when I fold it over, because it's easier to build a seam on the flat than it is going around the curve. But we don't think that way. We think I've got to do it symmetrically and I've got to do it the same both sides. So it teaches you to think outside the box, which is really a great skill for anyone, right? Yeah. When we look at things, don't make assumptions. Let's think outside the box. Let's see new possibilities. Let's see new things. And that's one of the things I, I love about felting. There's no end of what you can do. I'm working on making hand puppets right now. And one of the things I've learned is, you know, we make soap buddies where you wrap up bars of soap. Yep. You know, I the kids, I have a little story. I tell them as they do it and they just wrap it around and they don't worry about it willy nilly. But I've learned that when I'm making puppets that I have to watch once again so that I wrap it correctly around the wrist or I'm going to have splits around the bottom of the wrist, you know, unless I do it and then cut it open, which I'm not a cutter. So I, don't <laughs> I think it's a superstition for me. I don't know. <laughs> Don't cut. Don't cut. <laughs> yeah, we all form our own techniques, yeah. and that one works for you, so why change it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I would never, I would never um, disparage what another felter does because they've gone on their own journey to learn how to felt, and they know what works for them. I can teach what I know and why I do it, but heavens, there are beautiful who don't do it the way I do it. Yeah. And felting is a journey. It really is. It's developing a relationship with that wool. Can we uh can we just kind of talk through the process a little bit starting with um maybe wool selection what are you looking for when you when you're finding wool uh what works and what doesn't and why do you choose the types of wool that you do That's a, that's a that's a really great question and in fact that's one of the things I try to teach my students right away um and so it depends on the project you're doing what kind of wool you want so merino wool is a very soft wool. I also felt that I have an angora rabbit. So I've made baby booties out of an angora rabbit. Um, Ooh, so I bet the, those are nice. Oh, yeah. But you, you don't want to use churro wool for baby booties because it's very coarse. And yeah. so, look, you know, what am I going to use that for? And, and how is that, you know, how do I want this to feel? And what sort of flexibility do I want? When I'm building a hat, I want to use the churro wool and I want to use coarse churro wool, especially on the brim because I want that brim to stand out. 
So you want to look at the texture of the wool, first of all. You want to look at the breed because not all breeds of sheep will work. Meat sheep or sheep that are bred specifically for meat um, don't felt. I tried to say don't felt. Um, Suffolk, Columbia, Rambouillet does not work well for me. It stays spongy. It never tightens up. So it'll felt. Rambouillet never tightens up. Um, so some of those meat sheep, you... Um, um, is, is there Hampshire? Hampshire doesn't felt well. So especially some of those English breeds, which is maybe why they don't felt, um, they don't felt very well. And one of the ways to tell if, because once you start to felt, people will start bringing you bags of wool and saying, here's a bag of wool, go felt. Um, and one of the ways to tell if that's going to felt well is to take a little patch, um, probably just a little fistful of wool, and put a little bit of uh, soap on that wool. And you want to make sure you use biodegradable soap. People say it works. I, I have found that if I use a soap that is not biodegradable, it doesn't felt as well. So Dawn is probably the most commercial soap I use because for some reason it's biodegradable and it works. But Dr. Bronner's, um, some other eco-friendly soap actually works far better than those really heavy detergent soaps that are out there. Maybe okay. because of the fiber, I'm not sure. But it, I found that those work much better. So I'll put a little dab of soap in my in my hand with this little ball of wool and then I'll wet it down and I'll pat it. And if it's good felting wool, it will, um, it'll felt within 60 seconds. You'll have a piece of material there. You'll have a piece of felt there in your, in your hand. So that's what you want to do with any wool you get. So first you look at breed and, and good breeds are Icelandic, Romney, Jacoby, um, Shetland's really good. Um, Romney works really well. Merino works really well. So you want to look at a breed that specifically works for felting, and then you want to do a test patch and find out if that specific sheep felts well, because one sheep can be as different from another as one breed from another. Yeah. So that's why I say we breed for the felting quality, because we have some sheep who have beautiful long staple, but they don't felt well. You want to look for wool that does not have guard hairs in it, and guard hairs are coarse hairs, um, especially with the churro sheep. You'll see them on the outside there. I felted wool fur. And a wolf or a dog has a lot of guard hairs. They're slick and they don't felt. But the under wool of the wolf will felt. But if you have too many guard hairs, that project's going to fall apart. So some dog hair will felt. Um, buffalo felt. Um, llama does not felt well. And, does um, alpaca? Yes. Alpaca felt really well. Make sure you do a catch patch. I've got some beautiful alpaca right now I want to felt. Interesting. Um, so, so you kind of have to know your breeds a little bit, and then you have to do that test patch, because some some people say, oh yeah, this is a this is a wonderful Shetland, and then they've mixed it with Suffolk, and so it doesn't really felt. And so you want to make sure that you've got you know your breeds, and that you do a test patch before you take any wool home. So, hmm. what you do, and then to prepare that wool, and this is kind of this is the way I do it. Um, some wool is felt better than others. Churro, my wool is lightning fast. It's really fast. Uh, so I do not wash my wool before I use it. And a lot of people, you know, if you get wool from from online or something, you can get it washed and that's wonderful. Um, merino especially is easy to get washed and that's really wonderful wool. But I don't wash my wool because my wool felt so quickly. And And the Navajo people didn't wash it before they used it. And I didn't know that. I was trying to wash it like oh let's wash this wool um 
but I, I could never seem to, and I used a number of different methods. There's a washing machine method. There's a hand method. I had my bathtub full of wool and I'm like cold water and don't agitate it. And my wool would just start to felt while I was washing it. And it made it much harder to card or to work with. So I don't wash my wool. It gets washed in the felting process. That is one difference, major difference that I noticed between uh, what I was doing with you and what I've seen other folks doing, because it seems like most other folks are washing their wool and using washed wool to start felting with. Mm-hmm. And they do, but I don't. I, I just find it, it felt better. It's, it's easier. It's just so fast. It makes it easier. One of the things I do when I prepare my wool is I try to straighten out that wool. So sometimes I will use a carter to straighten it out, especially when I'm teaching new students. Because when the wool is straightened out, then you can see the direction of the wool. You can see the pattern that you lay out the wool with. Yeah. And so I card it. You can see that crisscross. I use that crisscross pattern. There's a clump method and a crisscross. I like the crisscross because I think you can make a, a thinner, more comprehensive, stronger project that way. Um, can you explain the, the crisscross method, and the clump method, what that actually means? means? It means that you're laying it out in one direction, and then you're going to lay your, hor- your fibers horizontally in the other direction. And so you have a nice grid set up of fibers, the clump method, you have to overlap and you have to be very cautious to make sure that you overlap those fibers to make sure that you have a good, strong uh, blend. And so for a beginner, the clump method is a little bit harder to do. So I usually have my, my students do a crisscross method when they lay it out. That'd make sense. Yeah. And I, I will use a carter or a drum carter to straighten out those fibers and to make those fibers, um, and more easy to, to lay out, more easily laid out. Now, if I don't have a carter, I do something called picking because the carter has two purposes. One is to straighten out those fibers. The other is, although I don't wash my wool, it helps to drop the debris out of the wool. I try to get wool that doesn't have a lot of debris in it. And so as I, as I card it, a lot of the debris drops out and a lot of the, the bigger pieces of dirt will drop out. The other dirt comes out as we're, as we're working with it but the carter gets rid of the major parts of that. The other way I will do it is I'll take the wool and I'll do what's called picking the wool. And, you know, back in the old days, the kids were doing this by the fire, right? They'd be just just pulling that wool apart and straightening those fibers with my hand. There okay. are that you can use that, are, that swing back and forth that have nails in them to straighten. Once again, it straightens out those fibers and it gets rid of the debris in the wool. And that's the purpose for doing that is to straighten out those fibers and get rid of the debris. So any method you can use to do that will help you lay out your wool better and it will make a better project. It'll help you find, um, find out if there's a piece of wool that's, that's felted before it's time, which you don't want to <laughs> use. Um, or it'll, it'll help you find like big nasty things in the wool that you don't want to have um, in that wool. If you're going to use um, two different kinds of fiber, which is possible, uh, you know, mix Angora and, and sheep wool, and you can do that. Uh, then you, you'll card those together, and that helps to blend the two fibers evenly so that you have an even, an even felting, an even project. So <laughs> just preparing the wool is part, of, is part of the process, isn't it? You know, picking it out and, and making sure that you straighten that and get rid of as much debris as you can. When you pick out your wool, too, you want to make sure you know where those sheep are raised. Um, because if someone calls you up and says, oh, I've got wool, if they're raised in a place where there's a lot of burrs or seeds or nasty things. um, I imagine that could be a nightmare trying to deal with. Yeah. And and I kind of go in the middle because some people raise their sheep with coats on them and and in enclosed places just for the fiber. 
and I am a little more soft-hearted about my sheep. So they're raised in a pasture that is free from all burdocks and seeds. And so their wool is fairly clean, but it's not as perfectly clean as if I raised them in a barn with a coat on, which happens to some. So because I want my sheep to be happy, I like seeing my sheep out on the green grass in the summertime. So, Besides which, it's just probably a little easier to just have them in the pasture anyways. <laughs> yeah, they're happier. We like it. Um, but you also want to ask, and some people say this is not true, but I find this to be true. I find that the fibers over, over time break down. So I don't like to get wool that's, uh, I rotate my wool in and out over two year period. If my wool is over two years old, I don't use it. Um, I, I give it to somebody else who's going to use it, who's going to spin it or do something else with it. Because I find that those little scales that are on the fibers and that's what makes them link and that's what makes them felt, find that they get brittle and they, and they break off. You don't want a place that stores their wool in someplace dusty. You want to make sure that wool has been stored not in plastic bags, which can make it rot or de- degrade the wool. You want to make sure the wool is stored in cotton or we, I store mine in burlap bags inside a shed. Okay. So those are the things to make sure that they stay clean um, and, uh, and dust-free and that your wool is not too old because if it gets too old, it doesn't felt well. Well, thanks for uh, mentioning that because that's not something that most people would have thought about if they're gifted a a fleece, uh, how to store it and what to store it in. I probably would have just thrown it in a plastic bag because that's easy and I have a trash bag laying around, but it's good to know that that's not good for the wool. Yeah, no, that's not good for the wool. No, not at all. So it can break down the fibers. So what else? Ask me something else. <laughs> quite a while, so I've made tons of mistakes. <laughs> the first one I made was a, was a boot out of... Um, was it, it was black one. I think it was Suffolk. I don't know. I'm getting my sheet mixed up. But um, it, it was a meat sheep anyway that I made this out of. And I and I laid it out very carefully. And the boot got bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger until it was just huge. <laughs> um, wouldn't shrink down because we know when we felt things shrink in the last stages. But it wouldn't shrink down because the fibers were not linking. Yeah. And I'm so discouraged. So, so discouraged. You know, so. So because they're oh, I got wool here. Take this wool. I had bags of useless wool in my house. <laughs> uh, it sounds like if you're going to do this and you're going to have people dropping it off, you also need to uh, either take up spinning as well or have a friend that spins so you can gift it to, re-gift it to them if it doesn't work for felting. Yeah. Yeah, I did. I, I, ended up ma- I ended up spinning Suffolk wool and making a sweater out of Suffolk wool in the end because it wouldn't <laughs> <laughs> So that's true. That's true. You just mentioned the scales on the fiber. We haven't uh, talked about the fiber at all. Can you describe how felting actually works and how it starts holding together and, and yeah, how they interlink and why that happens? So, you know, a human hair will felt. And so one of the best ways to help understand that is if you are able to make dreads in your hair, you've got little scales on your hair and those scales will link together. Uh, and, and if they, um, and so that's why some fibers work and some don't. Some fibers have more scales on them than others. And so the fibers that have scales on them are the ones that felt well. And what happens is we, we go through a process, as we felt, to get those scales to link and then to bring those fibers closer together. So initially, one of the reasons why we use soap to make felt and to do it, and especially in the initial stages of it, is so that we lay those fibers side by side and we want those scales on those fibers to stick up. 
And so once those fibers stick up, then we want them to slip across each other and link. And so those are the, that's the initial process. You have a fiber with scales on it that, that the, the scales stick up and then they link. And so that's your initial, initial felting that you have after you've, after you've done your layout. When you put the soap on it, the soap um, helps to clean the wool, of course, and it gets rid of some of the lanolin as you're working with it. Um, churro sheep don't have as much lanolin as other sheep do, which is probably why they wash them. Merino has a lot of lanolin. You wouldn't be able to fit with it like you can with churro, but churro doesn't have a lot of lanolin in it. Um, but once you put that soap on, it makes those scales on the fibers stick up. And then the soap also helps those fibers to just gently slip across each other. And, and as they slip across each other, they link, which is why you're pressing. The very first step is to just press down because what we're trying to do is to get those fibers close, to, close enough to each other so that those scales link. And so you just, and you can kind of shape and you're always aware of the shape when you make something. I'm always aware of what I'm doing to shape, to shape a hat or to shape a vest or to shape a rug. I'm always aware of that. So part of that shaping process is pressing that into shape. And what's really nice is that while you're pressing it into shape, you're also pressing those fibers together. And so the first step is to just press those fibers together and you just press and press and press and press and press and you don't rub yet to get those fibers to link initially using those scales. And then uh, I guess the, the next step is you just start with a really gentle rubbing. And I usually say, oh, it's just like patting a little bunny rabbit or something very gently. You don't want to be too rough because the fibers are still able to slide across each other and we don't want them to move. But once they've started to link, we want to agitate that wool just a little bit so that we get more and more of those scales to link and so that we get those fibers closer and closer and closer together. And as you're doing so, of course, you're you're shaping that with your hands even as you rub. Eventually, as you're rubbing, and I'm just kind of taking you right into the process now, eventually as you start to rub, you get to rub harder and harder and harder and harder until that becomes a solid fabric and it's shaped into that solid fabric, which is pretty miraculous. You did it, you know. It's, it's, it's kind of mag- fun. Yeah. 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 The, the fibers are like nothing. They're the, like this nondescript chaos. And all of this this it becomes this amazing creation, you know? So that's, that's why it's such a mystical thing for so many, for so many tribes and for so many cultures, it actually reflects, you know, what, um, you know, some of those creation stories that happen where there's chaos and then all of a sudden the the world itself is created. The fibers of the world come together, you know? So, (laughs) so that's why it's it's so sacred just to some cultures there and, and, and the far Eastern, you know, there. Recreated in miniature. So, so we just talked about uh, the fact that they're going to need um, soap to lubricate the fibers. Uh, when we did it, we also uh, poured water over the top. Um, can we talk a little bit about how moist you want it when you're just starting? When you're just starting to pat the fibers down, you get everything laid out. You put a little soap on. How much soap and how much water are you trying to go for? How wet do you want this project in order to get things to uh, start coming together? So you got to know your soap. <laughs> okay, Dawn is extremely concentrated, so you don't need a lot of it. But one of the things that I do is I tell my students, don't worry about how much soap you put on at this stage because it's far more important that those fibers slip and that your hands don't stick to the fibers. So I drizzle soap over the top, and I also put the soap on my hands so my hands don't stick to the fibers and move the fibers. Because when you're laying it out, you're laying it out with, remember we, we talked about laying it out with a thought to the mechanics. Yeah. Of the people 
been very careful about the layout and the shape and what you want it to be. So we really don't want those fibers to move. Um, the idea is to press them down. Uh, as, as for water, you want to make sure that all of those fibers are thoroughly wet. And you want to make sure that they, that, that initially when I wet them down, I look for the fibers to slightly float, not a lot, because we don't want them to float all over the place and move, but just slightly float so that I can kind of shape them. And it's a feel thing. It's one of those intuitive things. There's just a little feel that I can move these fibers just a little bit to make them float. You don't want anything that's dry. And it's just the, the tiniest bit of floating that happens. It's almost imperceptible. But, but you want those fibers to be able to be shaped uh, by your hands as you're doing it. And as you're, putting, as, as you're making this vision of yours kind of come to life, y you want to make sure that, that these fibers are going to flip across each other. And so you want them very, very wet. You want it wet down. If you see air between the fibers or you see any little bubbles or you see any little fibers that you can see separating from each other, you don't have enough water. Um, if, you, if, they, if it looks the least little bit dry, you don't have enough water. So you want to make sure that you put water on. Now, some people will tell you to put hot water on them and they use hot water. I don't use hot water hardly at all in the whole felting process. Some people will say, yes, you have to use hot water in the fulling process, which is further on down. I use cold water and I use it for a number of reasons. One is I don't need it. But the second is that, especially when you're first starting to felt, the cold water makes it so it doesn't felt so fast, especially with my wool. Um, you want that process to happen at a slower pace so that you can shape those fibers as they're, as they're being formed. Gives you a little more time to work with it. Mm hmm That's right. That's right. So I use, I use not ice cold water, but I use cool water. I don't worry about the temperature. Um, it used to be that toward the end of the project, I would boil water and put it in boiling water. And I found that I didn't need to do that at all. And so as I, <laughs> as I progressed over the last 18 years, um, I've kind of moved away from actually heating my water or using hot water at all because it's unnecessary. Yeah will speed up the felting process if you use hot water. So if you have a, a wool that felts well, make sure you know what you're doing because it can, it can get away from you and felt. And that's when you get little flaps and little pieces that aren't felted in to there. Uh, one of the things, as you're laying out this wool, you want to make sure that there are no, um, no little flaps or no, no that there's no place where the wool is, separating or, create, or starting to felt to itself. You want to make sure this is one cohesive piece. So sometimes as you're felting, you'll see a piece that wants to felt faster than the rest of it. And, and that's why I put a little more water on that to make sure that nothing felts faster than the rest of it, that it all felts in, in one, um, at one speed rather yeah. than having felt faster than the other part felt. Because then, then you end up with flaps and funny parts to your project that don't felt in with the rest. Yeah, that would make sense. When we were when we were laying this out, we talked about doing the crisscross method. I know when we were doing uh, the hat that I made with you, we did three layers. Is there a particular reason why three? Could you do it with just two, one layer going one direction and then one going perpendicular to it, or do you need more than two layers? I've always found you need more than two layers. I've found at least three. And the reason for that is that the wool has lot, a lot of airspace between it. If you do two layers, there's so much chance that you're going to get a hole yeah. in your product. You want to make sure that you're laying it out thick enough. Usually the thickness is probably two, even three inches. I'd say two inches is kind of, kind of 
Dan, but you know, it's, it's pretty thick and there's a lot of airspace in there. And because there's so much airspace, you don't see where those holes are going to be. If two inches is your minimum, what, what does that come down to as like a finished felt size? Is that quarter inch or smaller? Uh, what is a two inch depth of wool before you start look like it when it's finished? If, if you did, if you do a, a two inch depth of wool, it's a quarter to an eighth of an inch. I like three okay, inches, which is a, three inches of wool. It, and it depends on how you lay out your wool because some people will lay out their wool and they'll press it down where they're laying it out. And there's nothing wrong with that. Some people will lay it out and leave it wispy. So it just depends on how you lay it out. I'm talking about three inches of about a good three inches of wispy wool will go down to about a quarter of an inch. Okay. But you can have two inches, and if you press that wool in place, that two inches will do it. But I always do three layers because it's better strength and it's better coverage because you want nice comprehensive coverage or you're going to get a hole in your wool. And and so many times you think, no, I won't do that, and you miss a spot. So that's why it's really critical that you lay it out evenly in that crisscross method to miss that. And a lot of times when I'm laying it out, and I think you notice that, one of the things I do that a lot of people, because I'm very... I use a lot of the senses when I do it. Um, I've taught people who are blind to felt, and it's it's a pretty amazing to watch them make some really beautiful projects um, because you can use your fingers and you can feel the thickness of the wool underneath you. If you can feel the hard surface that you're felting on underneath, then you do not have enough felt on. You don't have enough layers there. You don't have enough wool there. I also do it by tapping the wool and listening for you know, I can you can hear a high tone where it's thin, and a and a lower tone where it's thicker, and so I use some of those tactile elements. I was about to say it's probably actually even easier to tell by touch than by sight, because once you get a few layers of wool, you may not be able to see what's under there, but you can definitely feel when a spot is thinner right. than others. Right. Yep. That's right. And and when you start to press, one of the things that I teach them is <laughs> now you know why it takes all day to teach someone to make a hat while you can. <laughs> <laughs> so we have that resist in the middle of our piece um, people have a tendency and, and initially we start pressing on the wool to press those fibers together when people press they want to press down really really hard but we have to remember that we're pressing that wool in place and we're shaping that wool and that the shape we want that wool to be is the shape of the resist and so as we shape it we're going to have a gentle inward press against the edge of the resist so that uh, the wool, you don't push out on the wool. If you push out on the wool, then that wool is going to felt to itself. And the purpose of the resist is to stop the wool from felting it to itself. So we want to, we have want to have a gentle inward press against that resist so that we keep that, that nice crisp seam in there. Now, I'm going you, you experienced this with me. And this is something that's kind of counterintuitive about laying out a hat that I teach students to do. When I make my patterns, I make them with a straight across edge on the hat, and then I tell my students to make their hat smile, to make a curve around the bottom where they're going to do the brim of their hat. I, I found that I would cut the round brim, and I get students still making a straight line across, and then they like a Sherlock Holmes hat. And so as you're doing that, be aware of the shape. Always aware of the shape as you're, as you're pressing your hat in place. It's really critical. So am I jumping all over the place? No, no, that's good. It's definitely good to uh, make note that if you, yeah, if you're working with a, a round object or a curved object, it, you can't start with a straight line. You need to start with a curvy line to begin with. You're trying to make it uh, accommodate a curved right. surface. That's right. That's right. And and unless you make that a conscious effort, it doesn't happen. And so that's why I have a, a resist that has like a straight across line because I have my students 
make a conscious effort to make a gentle curve, not a, not one that's too big, just a gentle smile, like a Mona Lisa smile on the bridge <laughs> of the head. <laughs> so we, we start with the uh, pushing it down and then we, you did kind of like a, a quick version of this. So we moved from um, pushing it down to gently rubbing it. Uh, can you talk through these stages once again that you had mentioned earlier, but give kind of the, the description of what the wool is going to look like before you move to the next stage um, so that folks oh, kind of get an idea oh, of question. at what point to move on to the next stage? Yeah, so so once you started pressing it, and of course you're pressing it into the shape, right? And you're kind of keeping that shape, you know, as you're pressing it in place and you're just press, press, press. After a little while, you will start to see that you can't see the fibers as distinctly. When Initially, when you press it, you can see the fibers running through the piece. And suddenly you're realizing, I don't see the fibers as distinctly as I used to. And you can actually pinch your piece and lift up and and you will be able to lift up a piece of fabric. The fibers will not separate. You just do it ever so gently, and that's when you know that you have reached, you're reaching the felting stage, and that's when you know, okay, it's just about time for me to rub. And as you start to rub, you start very gently. And if you rub and you start to see the fibers roll or form little balls on it, that's called pilling, and you want to pull back and you want to rub either rub a little more gently or go back to pressing until you can rub it without having those fibers roll. That's a good indicator. Yeah, it's a really good indicator. And so that's when you're going to, and once again, you're always aware of that resist underneath. And so I always have that gentle, that idea that I want to rub and press against the resist. Because even when you're rubbing, you can start that felting and create flaps in your hat. And that way your seam is going to show and you're going to have to try to find a way to get rid of that flap on the inside of your hat or on the inside of your bag or your vest or whatever you're making your boot. So always a gentle inward press or a gentle inward rub against the edges of that resist, pulling those fibers against the edges of that resist. And very often as I'm rubbing too, I'll take my hand and I'll rub it along the edge of that brim. And I'll, I'll turn my, my fingers into like a little, my father would call it when he was woodworking, he'd call it a jig. Or when he was metalworking, he'd call it a jig. I turn my fingers into a little jig that kind of helps to shape the brim of that hat and that rubs along the brim of that hat. So it rubs along the bottom and it rubs just on the top of that brim. So I'm felting right along that brim. You want to make sure you're felting those edges and be really careful to felt those edges because a lot of times we like to felt right in the middle of the hat. But, or I say hat because that's what I teach most of the time, but, but right along the edge. And so if you're running your fingers right along the edge, often enough you're felting right along the edge too, along the seam part and along the brim. So you want to make sure as you rub that you're doing that, gently rubbing those and getting those in shape, in shape as well. Make sure you don't forget the edges and focus on the middle too much or right. your edges are going to start falling apart. Yeah. And so once we start rubbing, you start to get to rub harder and harder and harder. Eventually, rather than just pinching it and picking up a little piece and seeing that the fibers are starting to link, you're noticing that this this is a piece of material that you can slip your hand inside of that material and it retains its shape. So we now have a piece of material. What we need to do once we've rubbed it enough to have it like fully felted is we need to make sure that all of it is felted before we remove that resist. So we do a process called palming, and that means that you take your hand and you slip it into that whatever piece you have, and you take your other hand and you rub it. You rub those hands together through the piece, so the piece is between your hands, and you're rubbing it together, and that helps to that helps to make sure that the underside of the wool or the inside of your project is felted. 
um, because uh, because the palm of your hand is doing it. It's interesting as you're rubbing to identify what part of your hand you're using as you're rubbing, because initially when you rub, you're just using the tips of your fingers, the top parts of your fingers. As you start to rub harder, obviously, by the time you get the palming, you're using the palm of your hand, which is a lot, you know, it's a lot heavier and it's a lot rougher than just the that your fingers, and it's going to put a lot more pressure on your piece than your fingers are. But initially, when you start to rub, you don't put your palm down at all. That will move more fibers. You just want to rub really gently, gently with the tips of your fingers. So by the time it's put together, then you're, now you're starting to use your palm. By the time you get through palming your hat, the resist is in your way. You've got a, you've got a piece of material. You've got a, a project, you know, your hat or your vest or whatever. You've got your project. And you can pull that resist out and your project is going to retain its shape fully. And so you don't need the resist anymore. Which is a fun moment in the middle of all this. I know. And you think you're never going to get there. It thinks you're going to shape it and press it forever, right? And, and once you start rubbing, it starts to happen pretty fast, actually. So you, you pull out that resist and then I, I take that, that project or piece and I'll say hat and I roll it up and I start to get rid of the soap now. Before this time, the soap in it and the amount of soap in it usually doesn't, it, it's not a big concern if you put a little too much soap in it so you can't feel it or your fibers are floating a little too much, then you'll take it out. But I don't like my students to worry too much about how much soap is getting in there because I want those fibers to slip across each other so they link. At this time now, the resist is in the way and too much soap is going to start getting in the way because we want those fibers to get closer. So I'll have my students roll up their hats and squeeze. I teach them never to ring because that can twist and shape the hat in a way or the project in a way that you don't want it to be shaped. But you roll it up and I have them squeeze out some of that excess soap. And if you're using biodegradable soap and I'm I'm pressing it out on the grass, it's not going to hurt anything um, on the grass. And that's what we hope for. But um, for the most part, you're going to put it someplace where you're not going to hurt the environment by squeezing it out and use a soap that's not going to hurt the environment. But But I have them squeeze out that soap. And sometimes I'll do it in a sink. It depends on where I'm teaching it. If I have a big sink, I'll, I'll put it down, you know, I'll let it go down the sink. You want to be careful because you're also squeezing the dirt out of the well and you don't want too much dirt in the sink because then you're ruining your plumbing, right? So, <laughs> so be cautious, you know, and all those hair, all that hair down the sink, you want to be cautious with that, right? But I, I squeeze it out and then I take it over to a bucket of water and I dunk the hat in that water and I squeeze it again. So what we're doing is we're getting rid of some of the soap in that. We're not getting rid of all of the soap, but you'll notice that a lot of the dirt now is starting to come out of that. Even as you've been rubbing with the soap, a lot of the dirt that's in the fibers are, are coming out. And so I, um, I have them squeeze it again. So there's just a little bit of soap. Then what I have them do is rub the project against itself. So I take it and, I, and as I rub it against myself, I'm adding that wonderful fine friction and Friction is key here now. We want lots and lots of friction at this point in time because we're not worried about the fibers coming apart anymore. And I rub it against itself. This helps to harden the wool. Essentially, you've just folded your project in half and you're, you're rubbing the two sides against each other now at this point. Or yes. if it's, yes. if it's uh, well a, um, yeah, something like a hat where there's an inside to it, you're just rubbing the, the two sides against each other. Right. Anything you can do to rub, yep, exactly right. Anything you can do to rub that fiber against against itself or, or rub two sides against each other. Okay. Now, at this point in time, too, one of the things you want to remember is that as you bring fibers closer together, you were always aware of the shape all the way through the project. At this point, you want to remember that the direction you rub is the direction it's going to shrink. 
So if I squeeze in one direction, it's going to shrink from side to side. If I rub in one direction, it's going to shrink in the in the direction that I that I um, that I rub it. So if I'm rubbing my left and right side of this hat, then it's going to shrink from left to right. If I rub the top and bottom, I'm going to make the hat shorter. So you want to recognize that whatever direction you rub, that is affecting the shape of the hat. So you're starting to be aware of how that rubbing is going to affect the shape of the hat. So eventually, once I get a good hardened hat, then I place that hat on a form. Um, and and that's where I really start to shape the hat. And usually I want that form to be bigger, uh, just slightly bigger than whatever I want it to be. So if I'm making a hat, I want it slightly bigger than your head. And I have found, I, I used head shapes. Um, and, and they're good. They're expensive. And I also find that work really well. <laughs> you saw this. I use bowls and bean pots. And one of the things that's nice about the old brownware green bean pots is that they come in. So I get to over-accentuate that, that, um, that corner of that hat, the, the place where the hat is going to turn and its where brim. Where the brim going... turns out, yeah. Right, right. I get to over-accentuate it when I have a bowl that, that kind of goes in a little bit. So I have a couple of bean pots. I call them my magic bowls. And I shape them. Now, one of the things that, that students want to do because they get this really wonderful shape on the bowl is they want to leave it that way. And I'm like, you can't really leave it that way because it's bigger than your head. But you don't want to make it smaller than your head. You want to bring it down to So there's a couple of ways to bring that down to the size you want it to be for your head. Once you get it shaped in the shape you want, um, then you want to bring it down to the shape of your head. And so one is... When I worked with when I worked with Wania, I would she had us rub the hats on our heads and use our own heads as the shaping, which gets your hair all wet and it's it's kind of fun. It works really well. <laughs> really good custom hat. Um, but another way to do it is to once again use that rubbing technique. And as you as you put your hat down on, I use trays, or as you put your hats down on a hard surface, you can actually work in to make that hat smaller with your hands so that. You've got it slightly bigger than your head, and so you work in a little bit so that the place where that you turn where that brim is, what do they call that? Um, you know, the headband, the hat band, where the yeah. hat band goes, you gently work that in so that it becomes the size of your head as you're rubbing. And then you can start to shape it, remembering that the direction you rub is the direction it's going to shrink, or just shape it by rubbing. You have a vision of what shape you want that hat to be. And so lots of hats start out with the same pattern, just that little bell-shaped pattern, that little half circle bell shaped pattern. And then I've seen, you know, cowboy hats and floppy hats and three corner hats like yours, right? And all sorts of different hats that happen as people start to shape it the way they want to shape it. And and initially haberdashers had hats that were just just one shape and then they would heat them and shape them. Now the felt making that happened before, and we're going back to history, used mercury. To make things so that's why you had mad hatters because it's poison, right? Yeah. Right, mercury to make your hat stiff. But and and when I was first making hats, I was using starch and I was using this and that. And what I learned is that the more you rub your hat, the stiffer that brim is going to be. And you can make a brim stand out or shape in any shape you want simply by rubbing it, and especially being aware, going back to the beginning, of the kind of wool that you're choosing to use. So if you're using a coarser wool, it will make a stiffer brim. And you won't have to. Um, that makes sense again. You know, it, they talk about Bilbo bagging as having a bag that a, a hat that was like a bag, right? Yeah. And I 
a Bilbo Baggins hat that looks like a bag. So, I mean, it, it, it was a felted hat, you know, of course I made it myself, but, but, you know, it was a felted hat that had been shaped exactly um, as he wanted it to. And it, and it depends on how you want your hat to be, what kind of wool you use, but you can get it to shape to have that brim, brim stick out just by rubbing. The more you rub, the stiffer it's going to get and the smaller it's going to get. So you just want to be aware of that. How much shrinkage should people expect as like a general rule of thumb when they're starting and laying out a pattern? I would say expect about a third, a third, a third smaller than what you have. A third to a half than what you have. A third is pretty good. A half is pretty far, but about a third smaller than what you have. Um, works really well. And if you're not doing something like a hat, you were just talking about putting it on a mold. Do you still use a mold if you're making, say, like a vest or something like that? And if so, what types oh, yeah. of molds do you use? Um, I have found that, and I've used a lot of different things for my resist. Um, I've used the, those big orange bags that they use along the freeway are really good. Um, I expect that, and anciently they might have used leather or wood or something like that. But I, I found that the high-end dog food bags work best because um, slip and slides work well. Because they have the flexibility, um, they're impermeable, and they're just a tiny bit stiff so you can feel that resist underneath and it's not going to move or shift. When I've used just a plain old trash bag, that bag can move or shift, and you don't want that, but, uh, but you know, something that's just a little stiffer plastic. And if I'm making a bigger project like a vest, I'll take a number of dog food bags and I'll tape together you know, the, the shape. And when I make a vest, I'm just using a rectangle and I'm shaping that vest around the rectangle and I'm shaping the armholes right there and the shoulders. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a seamstress too, so I understand how to do that with patterns. So I have that, I have that added. Definitely added, have that advantage, I, yeah. For, yeah, so I've sewn for over 50 years too. So. Um, but, but I shape it around a square and then I put just a little rectangle in there for the resist for the pocket. And then I like my vests to overlap. And because I'm a seamstress, I want them to overlap and have buttons that, you know, that overlap, right? And so I put a long strip down the front of it so that the, so that I'm felting that, that overlapping piece right there. So you have buttons and buttonholes. So that's the, uh, that's how you get the pattern. You make it out of the, the dog food bags and whatnot. I was wondering I about the yep. the molds because you were you were putting the hat on the the old bean pot or crock or oh. something like that. What do you use for a mold? Do you still need to use a mold, or at that point do you just put it on your body and keep shaping it from there and adding friction and whatnot? Yep, you just keep putting it on your you put it on your head or you add friction and you use your hands to shape it. I mean, sometimes if you want a really funky shape, I've I, well I've made witches' hats and su- and such, but mostly you can just shape it with your hands. I've okay. made all sorts. Of- just shaping them with my hands, you know, elf hats, witch hats. So you, you don't necessarily pre- need molds to, to felt depending on your project. No, you should be able to do it with your, at least I do. I should be able to do it with your hands. Some, some people would say, Oh, it's easier this way, but I find just doing it with my hands gets a lot more of what I want to do. That's what I call it. Sculpting with wool sometimes, because that's what we're doing when we're, when we're making whatever project we have. That's a pretty good way of describing it. Yeah. Yeah. So the, the bean potter, the things we use are to get the general shape and you can get the general shape pretty well, but to refine it and to make it the exact shape that you want, I, I use my hands to shape it whatever way I want it to become shaped. Now, here's one thing that I do at the very end. Once you get it all shaped 
and all rubbed in place. Now you want to make sure that it's pleasant. It's always pleasant for you to rub this, this wool, unless you really hate wool, but I love wool. But um, you want to make sure that your hands are moving over that wool well. But at the very end, you want to make sure you get all, all of the soap and all of the dirt out of that hat. And, and so when you do this, you want to make sure that you're not making a hat that's too tight because there's just the tiniest bit of shrinkage. I'd say that like 1% maybe or half of a percent, but just the tiniest bit of, shrink, of shrinkage that happens in this very final stage. I take the hat and my students usually are, are just flabbergasted and horrified when I tell them this after all the work they've done to shape the hat. Um, I have them dunk it in clear water. When I'm home, if I have clear water that's running, I will put it under clear water until the water runs clear. And I have them dunk it until there's no more dirty water that happens there from the, from the hat. And then I have them reshape it again. And what they find is that that hat reshapes within about five minutes. They've got their shape back that they had before. Yeah, it holds its shape pretty well at that point because you've, you've felted it together. Right. Yeah, it's about shortening the fibers. It's about the sh- the fibers are shaped that way. It's not that this is something that happens willy nilly. We've shaped those fibers to do that. So, and and the good thing to know is that if you get that hat dirty or dusty, you can always reshape it. And I've done this with my own hat. I've had my hat probably seven or eight years right now that I'm wearing right now. And you can always reshape it by dunking it back in water and then reshaping it. And then what I do is I leave it out to dry completely. And as it dries, there's just a tiny bit of water or soap that gets removed from that, that makes it the tiniest bit smaller. So be aware that you want to just a touch on the big side, maybe 1% on the, on the larger side. And so I leave it to dry for about 24 hours, and then you're ready to wear your hat. Um, putting a hat band on it helps to keep that nice crisp shape that's there around your head where your hat sticks out with your brim. Yeah. And so we just went through hat making. You know, um, with a with a vest, it, you know you don't have you don't have to worry about that. It just retains its shape. One of the things that's really nice with a vest is that wool is flexible, and so if you want a real form, my t- vests are pretty tailored, and so if you want a form fitting vest, it's very easy to do because you can stretch and pull those fibers into your shape once you've made your vest. You can do that after it's all finished. Yes, if you've got it relatively your same shape, I've got some vests that just fit me just perfectly. Wow. Because pull those right into shape just really gently, especially when it's when it's in that final wet stage. If you just give a real gentle pull to shape it to your own shape, you can get a really form-fitting vest doing that. So, I think a vest is probably a little large for me at the moment, but I think I want to try another project or two. I've got to have to, going to have to give this another go. <laughs> well, making vests and everything is different. Everything you make is different. It has a little bit different technique for the layout. And of course, we're looking at the mechanics and we're looking at the size of it and the speed of the felting. So, so a bag is much shorter because, of course, you don't have to shape it as much as you do a hat. But when you shape around the corners of that bag where that flap is going to be, you have to be aware of where those um, stress points are, where you're going to cause stress. And so you're, once again, mechanically going, okay, I need my fibers to go right around the edge of that bag. Yeah. Or when I'm doing a rug, it usually takes me a full day at least to lay it out or a vest. It usually takes me at least a full day to lay it out. Um, making sure that I don't have any thin spots and watching really closely. And of course, then I'm pre-felting and putting appliques down on the rug. And then I'm making sure that my edges are all wrapped and even and smooth. And, and the rug, when you make a rug, you do that and you learn little tricks to each project you make as you make it. You know, for, for instance, when I make a vest, I'm laying out the back and then one side and then the other side, um, 
together and checking those checking those edges as I go and you just have to do it gradually you have to make sure and this is uh, that when you're when you're blending one side to the other that you leave some dry fibers to blend and we didn't talk about that when we were laying out like I was talking about laying out the hat but when you have two sides and you're doing a three-dimensional wool project you want to make sure that you leave dry fibers to blend with the fibers that are going to be on the other side so when you're laying out a vest and I have the back out there and I have the fibers coming out the sides, I want to make sure they're dry so that when I wrap them around, they're going to blend with the fibers on the front. So we wet down and prod the center of your project and then you flip it over right. and bring your dry sides over and felt that side. Yeah, except you're not going to flip it. <laughs> but but, um, but you want to, but you, 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 you put your resist down. Once you get your first side down, you put your resist down, and then you bring those fibers up over that resist, for instance, when they're making a vest. Okay. And you want to make sure that, that as you lay out that second side that you're matching dry fiber to dry fiber because otherwise, if you start to felt those fibers that have to blend with the dry fibers, they'll felt faster, and they won't felt to those new fibers that get included in there. So you want to be really careful to try to make sure that your fibers are all felting at about the same rate. Otherwise, you won't stick together. Uh, it, it's yeah. It, this is why when I went went to the first man that I learned, how, you know, I like, can I learn to felt from a book? He went, no, and that's exactly why, because it's something that happens, you know, with experience and doing it and and having people explain it to you over and over again. It's why I've had three or four teachers. It's why I watch videos on it all the time. I read books about it all the time because I'm always learning new techniques from from wonderful felters that are everywhere that we all can share this beautiful art form and say, oh, that's something new I hadn't even thought of. And I learned from my students, too, who, who show me things. And I'm like, oh, yeah. Some of my techniques come from watching my students and watching them do things by accident, and they don't know they're teaching me as I'm, as I'm teaching them. <laughs> you know, seeing what works and what doesn't. You have all of those different hands using different techniques. Sometimes but, you get um, a wonderful accident happen. <laughs> yeah. Oh, Absolutely. Absolutely. And sometimes you get a student that has a beautiful vision. I've never had anyone make a three-cornered hat, Danielle, until you made yours. <laughs> and I've actually kind of practiced a little bit. Going, oh, that's a great idea. i gotta, I got to learn some new techniques for doing that, you know, because no one had ever done it before. So, it's um, a fun project. Yeah. You, you just mentioned uh, a couple you, – you mentioned there are some good books that you've found, though, and um, – that you've learned different techniques from and whatnot. Are there a couple that you would recommend to folks that are interested in, uh, or a have already done a little felting and are interested in learning more or want to just learn a little bit more about the process in general? One of the best books I found is a little tiny gray book and it's, it's a little tiny paper book called Swedish felt making. And let me see. I don't know if I have it here handy or not. I don't think I do. I think it's packed away where, moving on to the farm um but it's called swedish felt making and it's a really good book and it's just a little tiny thin and it's got little um it, it's one of the best books i've ever found do you know who the author is i think hang on let me see if i've got here it is it's called scandinavian style felt making it's by patricia spark you can get it on amazon and and you, and it's kind of pricey um it is. It's kind of pricey. I don't know if it's out of print. Or, and so you have to get secondhand ones or not. So that's one of the things. But, but it's a great book called Scandinavian Style Felt Making, a three-dimensional approach to hats, boots, mittens, and other useful objects by Patricia Spark. 
I'll go ahead and look that one up and include a link so people can check it out if they're interested in in finding more, reading more. I have some I have some videos out there on my on my YouTube site too. Rosemary's Basics has some videos out there on on exactly what I've been talking about. You know, so I I go through you know choosing wool and I go through how to make a uh, soap buddies. I do soap buddies with a group of kids and I do hat and I do bag making and I do hat making and I think next week I'm going to do a rug. Ooh. So rugs take a long time. I know they take a long time to do, um, but I want to show there's a technique. There's a Kazakhstan technique called Tekmet, which has to do with how they lay out a design on the wool, yeah. which is bullet. And and if you look at the hermitage, it's some of the things that are in the hermitage. Um, that's the style that's used to make some very crisp patterns that are just amazing. And so I'm like, okay, I got to do this. I've watched a couple of your videos, but I'll have to uh, get on once you post that one. And I'd be interested to see the yeah, technique yeah. used. Yeah, I think I think I'm going to do it down in the basement in the next day or two because we're moving, and so I <laughs> I have an empty basement, and I'm like, oh, this is a great place for you. <laughs> <laughs> Take advantage of it now. <laughs> my husband, well, the first time I made a rug, I made it on the living room floor, and we have hardwood floors, so it doesn't. And it, but he's like, honey, please don't do that again because it was a lake all over the floor. <laughs> and so he was like, ah, don't do that again, honey. Um, but. But I, I really want to make another rug where we're, we're building a simpler house on the farm and we're, we're selling this house and we're building a simpler house on our farm. And I want a felted rug on one of the floors. And so I'm like, okay, I'm going to make a felted rug. So, and I want to make a rug to bring the BTR for the, for the drawing, you know, and I like to show off at the drawings. That's how I show off as well. So, so you so, mentioned uh, going to Rabbit Stick and Winter Count and BTR. Now, how many gatherings do you go to? Um, last year, I went to four. I we went to Winter Count, but it's kind of too far for us to travel. We have to make some decisions there. Um, but I, I say this, but I went to one in Texas. <laughs> I go to Tavio, one in Tavione, Utah. Go to um, Rabbit Stick and Rexburg, and then we go up to Between the Rivers. Okay. Yeah, Washington State. So I, I've been going to the last two years. I've gone to those four, and um, and I don't know. We may go back to Winter Count one time. Winter Count is beautiful and wonderful. So it's a lot of traveling around. Yeah, but but we're retired, you know. <laughs> we have the we have the school bus. You saw our school bus. So we oh, yeah. school bus. We just travel around in the school bus, and and um sometimes I go and I teach down. You know, some people will ask me to teach classes around, and so I have a little um. I have a little teardrop trailer that we made ourselves too. And I'll travel around in a little teardrop. I've taught it a, a few places in Utah. I've traveled around Utah in a couple of places and, and taught felting there. And I just stay in my teardrop and, and I've felting, you know, in Utah County and then down in Garfield County, down around Boulder, Utah, I've taught it. Yeah. Yeah. It's a little bit traveling, but it's okay. I combine hiking with traveling. It's good. Phew, did I overwhelm you? I feel like it's, it's, it's so hard to, I mean, visually it's hard but to, to talk it through is kind of a little overwhelming, but I think that if somebody felt and listens to it, then it helps them know some of the nuances of what they're doing. So if they take that Scandinavian felt making book and they look at the pictures or if they watch a video, they can see why someone does something, you know, yeah. why, why are they doing that? You know, why, what are they doing and why are they doing, um, 
sometimes some of the people who lay out rugs, like in Kazakhstan, and do, they do it so much you can't see that crisscross method, and that's because they're they're not using the crisscross method. I have a different method for laying out rugs than the crisscross method because it doesn't work laying out rugs. So yeah. rugs are totally different than any other project I make. So what can I say? What can I say? <laughs> it's just um, gotta learn something new. It's an art form. Yeah, it's an art form. So. I think this is good for folks. So this is mainly, uh, I just want to talk about, yeah, the fundamentals, of what you're doing and why you're doing it at various points. Um, people are, people are going to have to go try it or find a, a person to teach them, uh, hands on yeah. if they really want to learn, but it's good to a, get ourselves introduced to oh, a yeah. new craft and B gets kind of the, the fundamentals and understand what's going on behind, um, what's being made. So, yeah, and, and it's, it's for me, it's fascinating. I, for some reason, I never get over the magic that happens when you see those fibers become material and then actually get formed into this wonderful shape or this wonderful piece of art that happens, you know, when I'm doing rugs, you know, I have a rug with a big tree on it um, in my, in my hobbit hole, <laughs> in my hobbit hole. <laughs> you know, but for me, it, it's, it's literally amazing and magical that you can take this raw material and turn it into this really beautiful object. So I love it. And I think it's, I think it's absolutely magical that this dates back so far into the past that we can actually connect to our past by looking at, you know, how did they do this? And, and there is this idea when we talk about primitive skills that it's all about, you know, living like cavemen. And it's like, these people had elegant lifestyles and, and elegant ways of expressing themselves that we don't even realize until we start to do some of the things that they do and we realize the nuances of what they did and, and how they connected to the, the animals and to the resources around them. And for me, that's what this is about. But I was going to say, I, I generally don't really consider things to be primitive skills necessarily per se anymore. Uh, that's how I started. I started practicing, you know, survival skills and primitive skills. And I've morphed my thinking a lot more to just its traditional skills. So, um, or some people call it ancestral skills. And, and I love that because I was really, like I say, it's in my blood. I was so surprised after I started felting and I started looking into the history of felting that, that the heartland of felting or, or some of the places where it really started were actually some of the places where my ancestors were. And I was like, Oh my goodness, this is part of who I am. Yeah, and people will find that, and so that was fascinating for me. It's literally part of who I am. That is awesome. Reconnect a little bit with your past. Yeah, yeah. So I, I love when I find something, find out something new about something that they discovered or somebody else. And there are there are a lot of newer techniques that they use. You know, there's dry felting with needle felting, um, which is newer because they use those the the needles from the felting machines to actually create objects or I use them to embellish my objects and to put designs on my objects sometimes, or there's something called Nuno felting where they, where they interweave like silks or fabrics in with the fibers. And I've kind of stayed traditional in what I do. And yet I admire those beautiful skills that that people have that they do. Uh, So we pointed folks towards your YouTube channel. Uh, Is there anywhere else you want to point them towards before we end the call? No, but here's the name of my YouTube channel. It's called Rosemary's basics. I didn't say that. I'll go ahead and link it up so everyone can find it. Yeah, yeah. Well, I hope it's what you wanted. I hope that helps. I oh, hope it was it... a ton of fun. Thank, thank you for coming on. I really appreciate it. 
Oh, you're so welcome. Thanks for thanks for asking me to share my passion with people, and I hope they enjoy it. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Folkcraft Revival Podcast. As always, the show notes and links from this episode can be found over at folkcraftrevival.com forward slash whatever the episode number is. I uh, should tell you right now in your, your podcast player what episode this is. I appreciate you tuning in. If you have any guest or topic suggestions, or any other feedback for that matter, I'd love to hear from you. Shoot me an email over at daniel at folkcraftrevival.com. If you want to help the podcast grow, the best way to do that is recommend and share it with others that have like interests. Second best, go give me a rating and review over on the Apple Podcast slash iTunes platform. Um, that's the biggest podcast platform, and doing it over there will really help me rise in the, the search rankings and show up to a few more people when they're looking for stuff. So, uh, In fact, while you're at it, just mash the subscribe button while you're there. It's a good idea. Hope you enjoyed the episode. Now let's uh, get out there and make something. <laughs> <laughs>